All right, so how many of you were wondering what the treadmill was for? All right, how many made a New Year's resolution? Well, new year, new you. I was like, I, I got to get at least 10,000 steps a day, right? So I figured, why not just walk while I preach, you know? Double, double do it, you know? Layer in those tasks, multitasking. And uh, it's interesting because you can actually do a lot at about three miles an hour. You can talk. You can preach. I even saw a guy on YouTube who has made a video, and he, like, set up his desk so he had a treadmill and a desk on a stand, and he walks about two, two and a half miles an hour all day long, burns thousands of calories. If you're wondering if I'm actually going to preach the entire message on a treadmill, don't worry. I learned early in ministry that there's a fine line between a good illustration and a distraction. So I won't necessarily preach the whole thing. But it's interesting because you can do a lot at three miles an hour, but we don't actually stay at three miles an hour for very long, do we, right? Like, we start there, and it's comfortable, but then, you know, we say yes to this, or we say yes to that, or this thing happens, and pretty soon we start to say, well, I can go a little faster, right? Like, the world says hustle, so we hustle a little bit, and then something unexpected happens. And don't worry, I'm not going to run. I was told not to run, but I'm illustrating a point that I can go faster, and I can do this for a while, but the track's starting to slip, and if I did break into a run, pretty soon I'd be out of breath. And then if something happened, I'd really be in trouble. Because there's a lot that you can't do at five miles an hour, or eight miles an hour, or 10 miles an hour, at least not very well. You can't preach, you can't reflect on your life. You can't be relational. You can't really pray at 10 miles an hour, can you? And you certainly can't love. In fact, Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama, say that one five times fast, he wrote in a book titled Three Mile an Hour God that God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he could have gone much faster. But love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed that we are so accustomed to today. It's slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds because it is the speed of love. Put another way, the Apostle Paul said in that famous verse, love is patient, and you can't be patient in a hurry. And the reason that this matters so much is that love is the highest value in the new kingdom that Jesus calls us into. When he was asked if there were one commandment, he said, no, there's actually two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then when he was with his disciples just before he was betrayed and the cross and everything else, he said, a new command I give you. He'd just given them the communion that we celebrated this morning, a new covenant, he called it, and now he has a new command, and the command is love one another. And love takes time, doesn't it? Can't really love in a hurry. 
In fact, Corey Tenboom, the famous missionary and evangelist, said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Because the busier we get, the more cut off we are from our connection to God and our connection to others. The two people we're supposed to be loving, and we find ourselves even disconnected from our own souls if we're not careful. Carl Jung, not a famous missionary evangelist, but a psychologist that knew some things about some things. He put it this way. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Like, devil does some really good work if he can get us to hurry. And so that's why Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, the context for that quote was a conversation he was having with John Ortberg. John Ortberg, many of you may know, famous pastor, author, was being spiritually mentored by Dallas Willard. And he said, what's the one thing I need to do to be the me I want to be? He had just written a book, or was writing a book, The Me I Want to Be. And he asks Willard, what's the thing that I need to do to be the me I want to be, to be more like Christ? And Willard says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg says, I wrote that down. I said, wow, that's good. Thanks. What else? Miller said, there's nothing else. If you do that, if you succeed in eliminating hurry from your life, you can be the person that you want to be. You can be more like Christ. John Mark Comer confesses, and maybe you can resonate with this, all my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry. Think about that. As a husband or a wife, as a parent, as an employee or an employer, as a friend. Our worst moments are usually when we're in a hurry. And he reflects on the reality, the, the statistic that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day and then ponders, what would my life be like if God touched my mind as often as I touch my phone? And so, in light of all this, we have a new series for a new year titled, The Pace of Grace. Now, it could very well have been titled, The Pace of Love, or The Pace of Mercy, or The Pace of Joy, or The Pace of Peace, because all of those are encapsulated in grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor in our lives, and it brings us His love. It brings us joy. It brings us peace. Plus, grace rhymes with pace, so there's that, and there's not a, a word like pace that rhymes with any of those words that I could think of without using the poetic license, and so I just settled on the pace of grace. Because when we realize that we're recipients of God's grace, when we really fully embrace our identity in Christ, and we live in that grace, we can slow down. We don't have to hustle as much. And it's an interesting experience to read the Gospels and realize that Jesus was never in a hurry, ever. If you can find a place where Jesus was in a hurry, I want you to bring it to me, and we'll have a conversation about it. But ironically, if you read the Old Testament, it's the same there, too. God was never in a hurry. His people were often in a hurry. People were asking God to do certain things, and they wanted him to do those things quickly. Anybody relate? Yet God was never in a hurry. 
And so I was forced to ask myself, if I'm always in a hurry, am I following someone who isn't? Like, I say I'm following Jesus. But if I'm in a hurry and the person I'm following isn't, am I really following him? And so the things that I'll share with you over the next six weeks in this series have had a profound impact on my life over the last 20 months. I try not to get excited about something and preach it to you right away. I try to get excited about something, work it into my life, and then preach to you out of the results of that. And this came home to roost for me when I went on sabbatical 20 months ago. And I would have told you going into that sabbatical, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need a sabbatical. A lot of pastors wait until they are completely fried, and then they beg for a sabbatical and try to get one really fast. And and I, I wasn't in that position. But I realized about seven days into my sabbatical, eight days in, when I started getting these headaches and this lethargy, and I was describing it to somebody who says, it sounds like you're coming off of a serotonin and adrenaline addiction. What was your life like up until a week or so ago? So it was pretty fast-paced. It was kind of a perfect storm. That last six weeks was wild. I'm preparing for a two-month break. We've got a, an annual business meeting. We had all of the things that go along with that. Easter was just before that. And so it was a busy six weeks. But all of the little things that are indicators now to me that I'm not in a good space, having imaginary conversations, projecting the worst case scenario, all of those things were part of my daily life at that point. And after about two weeks of being on sabbatical and coming off of the serotonin crash and the adrenaline crash, I realized how hurried I had become. And how, I wrote this in my journal, how unchristlike my way of doing ministry was. Think about that for a minute. How unchristlike my way of doing ministry was. And as I reread journals from the prior year, I saw how many times I just said, I feel so overwhelmed. There's not enough time. I can't do everything. I have to pick the things that I'm going to do and pick the things I'm not going to do. And I wasn't very good at delegating. I wasn't very good at a lot of things. But then I, I made some commitments. I made some changes. And I was better when I got back, and people said, man, you feel different, like just being around you feels different, and I was like, well, praise the Lord, I feel different being inside me, (laughs) and then early last year, just about a year ago, I listened to a book titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, who I just quoted, and it was a book that had been recommended to me for like a year, year and a half, a lot of pastors had read it, a lot of people had read it, recommended it to me, I never had time, right? So I listened to it, and I will confess, the first time I listened to it on Audible, I listened to it at 1.7 speed, because that's what I listen to Audible on. It keeps me more dialed in, more focused. I can get through almost twice as much content in the same amount of time. Like, who wouldn't, right? And it was good. You know, I listened to it while I was doing other things, and I took some notes mentally, and I made a few changes. And then I'm in this reading group, and they said, we're going to read this book, And so I read it again, and I read it slowly, and I wrote in the margin. I said, I've made a few minor adjustments, and I have reduced the amount of hurry in my life a little bit, but I have not ruthlessly eliminated hurry. And I got more serious about it. And so this series is is loosely based on that book in its format and its structure. I like the way he approached some things, and I like the way 
that it gives you a lot of opportunities to do what you want to do and not do what you don't. And so I'm going to recommend to you, like I've done a number of times, five levels of engagement that you can go through this series. As we start this new year, if you haven't made a New Year's resolution, and you usually do, maybe you pick one of these and that can be your first New Year's resolution. Maybe you've made several and you're like, I don't need any more New Year's resolutions. That's okay. But I want to encourage you to pick one of these, one that would be a little bit of a stretch for you, and then I want you to tell somebody, somebody that would be likely to ask you, how's that going after a week or two? And so the first level of engagement would be to make a commitment to attend all six weeks of this series and to prioritize in-person attendance, if at all possible. Like, yeah, if you have to be out of town and you can't be here under any circumstances, then join us online, watch it, make, schedule the time, do it live if you can. Do it later if you can't do it live. But for some of you, this would be a good habit to establish. And church attendance on a weekly basis is not a part of your life. And so this would be a stretch for you. Some of you made it to more services last year than I did at Linwood. And so this is not a stretch for you. So don't settle for number one, right? Go on to number two. Read the book of Luke and the book of Acts in these first two months of the year. Prioritize reading a chapter a day of Scripture, sitting in it, reading it slowly and carefully. And if you haven't already started, it's interesting to note that there's 52 chapters in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. They were originally written as one book. We separated them into two and put John in between. But there's 52 chapters, and there's 53 days left in the next two months. But by the end of February, if you just read a chapter a day, you can even skip one. And if you are already in a banding together group, this is not a stretch for you. You're going to do this anyway. But if you're not and you get into this habit, then I would highly recommend you join a banding together group. And meet with people and talk about the scriptures that you're reading. And hear what they heard from that passage or how that applied. Or get your study Bibles out and dig into some passages that don't make a lot of sense right off the bat. So that would be the second level. That might be a stretch for you. But if you're in a banding together group and you come to church every Sunday, that's not a big deal. So maybe number three is for you to commit to a weekly Sabbath in 2024. Spoiler alert, week four of, the Ruth, of this Pace of Grace series is going to be talking all about Sabbath. But you can decide right now that this is going to be a priority for you, that you are going to carve out a 24-hour period of rest, renewal, worship, reconnection with God, with yourself, with others that you love, that you're going to make that a priority and you're going to push pause on the things that normally break your Sabbath. That might be a stretch for some of us. Number four would be to read the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's not for everybody, I'll tell you that right now, okay? He's a little raw, he's a little unfiltered at times, so if you're easily offended, you might not want to pick up that book unless you're trying to work on not being so easily offended. He gets in your face a little bit, and if you've not been in a hurry in a couple of decades, you don't probably need to read the book, okay? But if you find yourself resonating with some of the things that we talk about today and feeling like you're often in a hurry, often overwhelmed, often disconnected from yourself and from God, because of that, then this book might be a goldmine for you to read as you walk into this new year. And the final one would be to share what you're learning and doing about it with someone else. Now, number five works with any level, but generally these are progressive. So if you're going to do one, do number two. If you're going to do number two, you're going to do one and two, so on and so forth. You see what I'm saying? But number five is something that you can do even if you just pick number one. Say, hey, you're not going to believe this. I went to church six weeks in a row. I know, right? And here's what I learned as a result of that. And here's what I'm doing about it. Or you could do all four and share what you're learning with somebody. 
Now, today's message is titled, The Problem. We're going to look at the problem of hurry, because hurry is a big problem in our lives. In fact, you've already heard the bottom line. I just didn't call it out as such. It's the first half of that Dallas Willard quote, that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And I had to double check and make sure I didn't misquote it, because it's not the spiritual life or a spiritual life. It's the great enemy of spiritual life. Everything that encapsulates a spiritual life, a life connected to God through the Holy Spirit, hurry is the great enemy of that. And I think the phrase at the end, in our day, is significant as well. Because hurry wasn't a big deal up until a couple hundred years ago. But it is a big deal today. We find ourselves immersed in a world addicted to hurry. A world that glamorizes hurry, that glamorizes hustle, even within Christian circles. And it doesn't stop with hustle. We hustle, then we hurry, then we rush. And you don't have to do anything other than drive across town at the speed limit to realize that we live in a world that is addicted to hurry. You will be passed by 90-95% of the cars. And then you'll see them at the next stoplight. Because the hurry didn't get them anywhere, right? They just hurried. Or you could go shopping and have the the audacity to look at the ingredients on the back of a package to see if there's rancid oils or some, you know, fake sugar or something that you want. Like, I can't tell you how many people get annoyed at me because I park my shopping cart and read things to see if I want the poison that's tucked into that food or not. Like, right? Or just look at your schedule. How much margin is in your schedule? How much space is in your schedule? You see, we weren't designed to live like this. As I mentioned, it's only been in the last 150, 200 years. The contemplatives have a phrase called chopping wood and gathering water, and it refers to how human beings lived until two centuries ago that the average person spent a lot of time chopping wood and gathering water. Like every day, you had to go get the water from the water source because there wasn't indoor plumbing. You had to chop the wood because there wasn't natural gas or electricity. And so they spent a lot of time, and everybody was a contemplative, not just that subset now that actually takes time to think and gets stuff out of their ears and communes with God and journals and reflects. And so there were a couple of things that changed all of this. The Industrial Revolution was a big one. And the incandescent light bulb, like Thomas Edison. Way to go, Tom. You shaved the average person's nightly sleep from 11 hours to 7 with the invention of the incandescent light bulb. Like once that got prolific in our world, the amount of time people sleep started to go down. Because now I can light things up. I can spend more time working. I can spend more time doing. I can hurry. And all these modern conveniences have done nothing to add time into our lives. They've just added speed to our lives, technological speed. And so here's where God's Word comes in. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. If you need a Bible, they're in the seats in front of you. If you have your own, I would just encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to camp out in this passage for a little bit. The Bible's in your seats. It's page 1821 if you want to get there quickly. 
But Paul kind of describes this type of shift that we're talking about here in verses 17 through 19. So let me read that to you, just kind of walk through that passage uh, briefly. Because he says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now, hurry wasn't that big of an issue in the ancient world. It got dark and you had to stop whether you wanted to or not for most people. But we, in the 21st century, and really in the late 19th and all of the 20th century, have taken the continual lust for more that Paul talks about, we've taken that to new levels. And that is what drives so much of our hurry. It's that continual lust for more. Now, I am not talking to the single mother of three who's working two jobs just to make the minimum lifestyle standards and make ends meet. I'm not talking to that person, but I am talking to the bigger, better, newer, faster, more madness that drives a lot of us to work longer hours, to work harder, to buy newer things. I've got to have a newer car. I've got to have a bigger house. I've got to have nicer things. I've got to keep up with the Joneses. I have to look successful. I have to have new things on a regular basis because I don't want people to think I'm broke or I'm poor or I'm this or I'm that. God forbid we be content with what we have and work less to maintain that lifestyle. That's who I'm talking about. That's who I'm talking to because hurry sickness has become an epidemic in the modern world. It's a, it's a diagnosable condition called hurry sickness. Here's a couple of definitions for you. A behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. That's one sociologist definition. It reminds me of a seminary professor, Dr. Brewer. He said, hurry plus worry equals functional atheism. Hurry plus worry equals functional atheism. It's living as if God doesn't exist. If I'm always in a hurry and I'm always anxious or worried about something, then I'm living as if God does not exist and as if he doesn't love me. You see, grace has a pace. Another definition that has been given is a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. That's the one that kind of got up in my face. And I have to confess, like, that was me. And I'm sorry because you got the results of that sometimes. Some weeks you got a microwave sermon instead of a pot roast sermon, right? Which would you rather have, hungry man, lean cuisine, or would you rather have the pot roast where the potatoes are nice and soft and everything's come together and you can smell it when you come in the house? Now, the third definition comes from the psychologist that coined the phrase type A personality. He says, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more or more events in less and less time. Do any of these resonate with you or with someone you know? 
And so here's 10 symptoms of hurry sickness. I'm going to move through them really quickly. If you do end up picking up the book, we've got it available. Our friends at Crossroads have made that possible. We're passing along our price to you, $20 even. You can take that home with you if you want to read it. There's a section on this, several pages that cover this idea of hurry sickness. But there are things like irritability, hypersensitivity. And if you casually dismiss those, I want to challenge you to ask somebody who knows you really well that you trust, am I ever irritable? Am I ever hypersensitive? Because these often live in our blind spot, right? So you might need some help on diagnosing irritability or hypersensitivity. Restlessness is another one. Number four is workaholism or just nonstop activity. Emotional numbness or out-of-order priorities, which sort of feeds into the next two, lack of care for your physical health. Like, are you not able to care for your physical health because you're always in a hurry? Escapist behaviors, slippage on spiritual disciplines, or isolation. How many of those do you resonate with? How many of those are a factor in your life on a weekly or a monthly basis? Now, I told you we were going to talk about the problem, and I think we've done that fairly well. I think we can agree that living in a constant state of hurry is a problem. So you might be saying, okay, what's the solution? Well, it should come as no surprise. The solution is Jesus. And if you've read ahead, you see that he is the solution to what Paul is diagnosing there in verses 17 through 19. In verse 20 through 24, He says, you, however, did not come to know Christ in that way, in the way of the world, in the way of the Gentiles, in the way of the prevailing culture around you, which for us includes hurry. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, that continual lust for more. In 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The solution is to come to know Christ, to know Christ deeply, to know Christ intimately. Don't settle for just hearing of him, as Paul says in verse 21. But be taught Go below the surface level of knowing about and come to know him. Be taught. Be discipled. In verse 23, 22, it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self. This is talking about a change. How different is your B.C. from your A.D.? And maybe you have to go back a little ways. For me... There was a pretty sharp change, and then I kind of got lulled into living a certain way that looked more like my B.C. than I think God wanted it to. When I say B.C. and A.D., I'm talking about before Christ, before salvation. How much has your life and your lifestyle changed from before Christ to after he took dominion? Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, that's what A.D. stands for. It means dominion of God in your life, in this usage of it. How different is that? What speed were you running B.C.? And what speed are you running now? And Paul brings this to a close in verses 23 and 24 when he says, 
that we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. Again, there should be a change. We should be different. We put on the new self, which was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I tell you, true righteousness and holiness doesn't happen in a hurry. It takes time. Think how many times Scripture talks about walking with God, walking in Christ's ways. That even before the fall, what are we told about Adam and Eve? That they walked with God in the cool of the day. And throughout the Old Testament, those who lived by faith walked with God. And Paul says multiple times in his letters to to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we have received, that, that as we live, as we walk, we walk with Christ. And so we'll talk more about that next week. The Next week's message is titled The Solution, so I don't want to preach that message right now, and you're probably about ready to go. But for now, I want to bring us back to that bottom line, that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And I want you to just do some some self-reflection, some self-assessment. Carve out some time. Schedule it so you don't rush through it. Give yourself a half an hour or an hour. Maybe have a conversation with somebody that knows you closely. Have a conversation with God and say, is hurry a problem in my life? And give him some time to respond. And ask yourself, how could, how could I change that? What could I change? And as we'll talk about next week, it's not always that a lot of things have to go out, but the way we do them changes. And that can have a profound impact. And if you're sitting here and you're like, well, this series isn't for me. I haven't hurried in 20 years. I've been retired. I'm never in a hurry. And now I know that's a misconception. Retired people are just as susceptible to getting overscheduled and overworked and overrushed. But if you really are in that position and you've got lots of marginal time, free time, then maybe ask God, who could I help? Do you think an hour or two that you could give to a single mom that we talked about that's working two jobs or an hour or two that you could give to somebody that's in that sandwich generation, they're caring for older parents, they're caring for younger children, and they're fried and you can see it? Maybe it's your own kids. Maybe it's somebody else's kids. But I want you to think, what could I do? If hurry is an issue, how could I change that? If hurry is not an issue, how could I help? And as I've often said, don't settle for an I can't because response to that question. Just write out, I could if, and then finish that sentence. Ask God to help you finish that sentence. I could if. I could if I did that, or I could if I did this. And we'll come back next week and we'll pick this conversation up. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the good news that you love us, that you care about us so much, that you don't want us to go through life hurried and exhausted, that you came that we may have life and have it abundantly, a rich and satisfying life, a life that is full with good things, but not overfull. And so, Lord, I can imagine a number of responses to this. Some of us need to take this to heart. Some of us need to confess and repent. Others need to 
rejoice and say thank you and say, how can I help someone that, that we both care about to deal with this? We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.